My name is David Zachary. I'm DTV's Deputy Editor. And I'm James Cave. I'm Editor-in-Chief. This month, the editorial looks at the issue of the NHS Medicines Bill. Now, clearly, all NHS organisations involved with prescribing or dispensing medicines need to have a budget for those. It needs to be reasonable and accurate so that people can monitor expenditure and stay within their budget. But what's happening in the real world in, in NHS prescribing? So um, I was a little bit surprised by this because I thought we were doing quite well in primary care on drug costs. But actually, in the last year we have, which is 2013 to 2014, the NHS spent across the whole UK over £15 billion on medicines, both that's primary and secondary care. And in England, that drug bill increase was 7.6 over the previous year, which is quite significant when you obviously aware, as we all are, that actually the NHS budget will stop rising year on year over the next five years and will actually decline. So typically the NHS budget goes up by about 2.5%. We've got drugs running at an increase of 7.6%. Things that have been kind of put in place to help offset the, the, the rise in drugs budget, obviously we've got the PPRS negotiation where it sets a, a limit on the amount of profit that uh, manufacturers can, can make on, on their branded medicines. We've got work done by individual organisations. We've got NICE who are giving advice on, on how and when to use medicines. But we are slightly concerned that maybe those aren't enough to stem the rise in, in increase in, in expenditure. No, and it, it, is, it is difficult to understand what's going on here. You know, there, there, there's sort of two issues. Is it that we are using some drugs poorly? Is it that certain new drugs that came into play that were meant to in lead to savings haven't achieved that? And, you know, are we disinvesting in drugs adequately enough in the NHS? And these are some of the things we discuss in the editorial. Now, obviously, there are some initiatives that areas have put into place in terms of rationalising medicines use, trying to cut down on, on wastage and helping patients to make the most of their medicines. Of course, if if we want to invest more in medicines, that, that's fine. But at the moment, it would suggest that we're putting perhaps more unplanned expenditure into medicines than we are expecting. And therefore, this will have a knock-on effect on other NHS budgets. Indeed, absolutely. And I think there's always a difficulty with medicines is that they are easy to start and difficult to stop and often it's it's easier in the NHS to reach for a prescription pad which might cost very little seemingly but actually in the long term creates a huge bill whereas to organise more complicated care in the form of social care or uh, rehabilitation or physiotherapy actually is actually quite a bit harder to achieve. So quite a few challenges for the NHS to grapple Indeed. in the next few years. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. First main article this month looks at the challenge of managing drooling in children, particularly in children with certain learning difficulties or developmental disorders. We look at the problems that, that drooling can have. What's struck you as the main issues that we've, we've picked out in this one, James? So it was a really interesting article because I've not seen anything that's looked at this anywhere else. Drooling can be a real problem for patients with cerebral palsy where it can affect more than a third and what's interesting is that this is rarely actually due to hypersalivation. It's actually because of things like posture, which actually makes the management of it that much harder. And we go through the, the various options and interventions. I suppose from the outset, we should say that because we're dealing predominantly this, this is in children, licensing is an issue for any medicine that we cover. And most of them will not be covered by a UK license for this. So a lot of prescribing will be will be off label. But what, we, what do we go through? We go through some of the conservative measures and look at the evidence behind those exercises and intraoral devices and how they may ha may help 
And then we look at the individual drugs. And which were the ones we focus on? Yes, yeah, so we look at the um, anti-muscarinics, as you might imagine. You know, we often talk about how these drugs cause a dry mouth, so you wouldn't be surprised to see that they are used in this condition. Things like glycoperonium, hyacin, these um, have all been traditionally used for hypersalivation in children. Uh, they, they've got, obviously, issues and side effects with them, but they do have, you know, they are used significantly in this condition. But when you try and look at the evidence, largely poor, well, poor studies, they're, they're very limited evidence, small numbers of patients, short duration, given that this is likely to be long-term management. So it's quite difficult to, to be able to draw a comprehensive picture of what's going on partly because the evidence base is so poor? I think that's right. And I think, so, like so often in these sort of areas, you end up actually with no clear algorithm approach to the management, but more a basket of options that you can try out on, on children to see which one might best help them. And what seemed to be clear from, from the evidence and what people had experienced is that these drugs are often limited by adverse effects, and therefore patients and carers need to be fully aware both of the unlicensed nature of the treatments that might be being tried, but also of the potential for harms, so they can make an informed decision of, you know, do these things make, a be- make it any better for the patient, or are they hampered by, by adverse effects? I, I think that's absolutely right, and I think sometimes it's about not trying for perfection, but just trying for some benefit. So I think these all these drugs have a significant amount of side effects, and, and tolerance as well, so if they're used too much they end up not being effective at all. So you might reduce drooling a little bit and that might be enough to improve quality of life. Correct and it may be that it's just part of the management using posture and other options as well so that you have a a rounded approach which improves. Because the thing to remember about uh, salivation is that it has a very negative impact obviously on these children. It can impact on how people see them, it can impact on their ability to talk, express themselves and, and eat. And then finally, we look at the more radical end of treatment. So botulinum toxin, again, unlicensed, and some work with that, but obviously highly specialised, needs to be done in a hospital setting and is much more invasive. And then surgery, for which, again, the, the evidence is not huge. Yes, we have a sort of bag of sort of really very small print stuff, which uh, we discussed, but which is obviously only used in a very small number of children. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month is the second part of Drugs for the Doctor's Bag. Last time we looked at use of drugs in emergencies and the range of drugs that a doctor might like to have available for routine use in primary care during normal working hours for going to see patients on home visits. We looked at adults. This month we look at children, but the same caveats apply. This isn't about what you do out of hours and what the emergency services should have. It's about what a GP might encounter on a routine in-hours visit. That's right. And we've discussed this sort of, you know, is it still relevant in the 21st century for GPs to be carrying drugs in their bags, particularly with the pressures on them from CQC and risk assessments to make sure that they keep these drugs properly. The storage issues obviously are a big thing, I think, for most GPs. But we felt it's still important to to look at this and ask ourselves what would be the sorts of drugs that would be helpful for a GP if they get called out to visit. And I think many of us now are looking again at what we carry, and I think this is a use this is a useful summary, just the sort of stuff that you might want to consider carrying with you, as you say, on a just daily basis. And it's not a must-have list of everything. It's it's what you t- should consider, 
and tailor it according to your local practice and your local setting. So if you've got great access to all sorts of emergency services, you might need a much smaller list. And clearly, if you're in the wilds of outer Scotland, you might need a much longer list. I think that's right. And I think, and I think increasingly now, uh, paramedics do carry a lot of medication. So that is an option. But in some parts of the country, even, even actually you know, in the shires, the, the response rate can be quite slow now from ambulance service. So it, it, I think it's important that GPs put themselves in a position where they can do some good. Okay, thank you very much. And clearly we'd, we'd welcome any feedback. You know, are there things that we've missed? Are there drugs that should be considered that? So if anyone has suggestions or comments on the article, please do email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. And to read any of these articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. Thank you very much.